story. My name is Tegan Aline. My name is Melanie Nevis. And uh, this is season three. Oh my gosh. No, yeah. four. It's four. Is, is it? it four? Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. Yeah, it's four. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, with that in mind, I feel like Mel and I have just been like, I don't know how else to say it, pile driving through these topics. Like we've just been like- Yeah, pedal to the metal, really. Yeah, yeah. It's been fun. It's been a ride. I I didn't know I could absorb information this fast. Sometimes you still question it. (laughs) (laughs) But in season four, we're going to be talking about Arthurian legends. Yay! I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah, I think we were both pretty excited uh, to explore these for multitudes of reasons. Like, I don't know. How do you, how do you, like, when did you first come across these stories when you were growing up? I honestly don't even remember when I first (laughs) heard about it. Right? It's, it's like old as time. Yeah, like I, it's just, it's kind of been, and I think this is the case for a lot of people nowadays, It's it kind of just pervades popular imagination in a way that very few legendary so characters have. And I think that it's really become ingrained in world culture, or at least Western world culture, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But it's the, like, it's, you know, these stories about hope and romance and the idea that times are tough, but they'll get better. And that's a very human yeah (laughs) human perspective (laughs) you know yeah yeah Yeah. it's just like it's it's almost as old as like good versus evil it's but it's a little more romanticized than that yeah absolutely absolutely it's really yeah it I kind of echo what you just said because when I started to when I started thinking about this I was really excited and then I was like looking at the research or looking out, looking into the research, like doing the research. And then I got scared because I was like, wait a minute, it's been so long. Like this story has just always been there, but it's always been there (laughs) in such a, in such a like concrete way that I'm like questioning whether or not I actually even fully know it. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like there's so much. Yeah. You know, bits and pieces. Yeah. You know, bits and pieces where you're like, oh, sure, the round table and um, Arthur, the sword, and the, the sword. And like, there's all these things and characters. Yes. Exactly. But do you actually know the story in depth? I don't know. Yeah. And that was what I kind of led myself to, to question. And I, I need to preface this by saying, like, I did three different days of research around, around it because I because I was feeling like I don't know and I still feel like I'm not sure but I'm gonna give it a shot because like as I dug into it I was like oh it goes deeper it goes deeper it goes over here it goes over there oh I don't actually know there's a lot a about lot. the historical and there's like context. there's there's the yeah that's just it there's like there's the story itself but then there's the historical evidence for the stories and the archaeological evidence for the stories. And those that's kind of the route that I went down, like the yeah. old literary references and archaeological references that exist and how they've kind of changed over time. I'm so glad you went down that route because I tried to go down that route and I, I admittedly got lost in the sauce of everything. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so I think- I've got you. <laughs> So I think where I ended up kind of going into is like, I realized originally I was thinking about the place, right? We talked about Camelot mm-hmm. in the beginning. Um, and then at one point I was like realizing that the stories themselves revol- revolve around Arthur. And like, he's kind mm-hmm. of like the, the center pinta- pinnacle of that. So then I started following into that. But yeah, like I said, uh, you know, Growing up, my father was like a hardcore Monty Python fan. And the moment that I realized that a majority <laughs> of my reference for this story was the Holy Grail, like the movie, I that yeah. was the moment I got scared. <laughs> Honestly, I remember seeing pictures of Guinevere and Lancelot as a little girl and think it was the most romantic thing ever, like obviously not having awareness or context. And there was a point when I was a young girl, when I was like 13, where I was like, 
if I ever have a child, a daughter, I definitely want to name her Guinevere because I love that <laughs> name so much. It's funny because I have like I have like English and Welsh heritage on my father's side, and there's just honestly so much I don't know I don't know and didn't know ab- about these stories. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it would be, yeah, I think it's, it's good. We should probably like dive in, get a little bit of a okay. refresher, at least of, of a few of the main pieces of, of the Arthurian legends. And then as yeah. the season goes, we can really get into it, the nitty gritty yeah. of it. <laughs> I just want to take a second to plug a book series that mm-hmm. I absolutely love yeah. that's kind of related to this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's the Skystone is the very first book, but it's called the Dream of Eagle series, and it's a his, it's historical fiction. Mm-hmm. It's written in uh, by someone named Jack White, who's a Canadian author. Yay, Canada! In the U.S., I think it was published under the Camelot Chronicles, and they are a rendition of the Arthurian legend. There's nine books in total. Mm-hmm. It spans a long series of time, like it continues for over 150 years that these books basically cover and it starts Mm. during the roman departure from britain and it continues during the settlement of britain by germanic angles saxons and jutes it's really good because it It actually gives a genuine and much more realistic representation of all of these arthurian characters and legends and how Mm. they came to be so like the merlin in these books is written in such a realistic way that you understand how these legends around Merlin could could have survived and how they could be. So anyways, really, really good. Okay. Please read it. Okay. (laughs) It's like, it's one of my favorite series. So good. Okay. Okay. I'm going to make a mental note of that because that's what I was, I felt like I was missing actually. I was like, I I need to read some like more on this. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a really good historical fiction book and you know, the, the true historical part is everything that was happening in England at the time that he's writing. It gives a really genuine representation into how Britain basically fell into the Dark Ages once Rome left. Yes, um, yes. What I was, was reading like. about that a little bit. So I was actually yeah. reading about that. And I think it's interesting because from what I from what I was reading so far, my understanding is that really the legend of King Arthur and all of these supporting stories kind of oddly enough come into fashion around the 11th and the 12th century because some French guys decide to write some extra stories related to Guinevere and Lancelot. But Mm -hmm. there is some reference of a story around a character that many think was Arthur as early as the fifth and sixth centuries when Rome was leaving, was leaving the territory. And that's really interesting. What's double interesting is that we're back at the Roman. I didn't, I didn't think this was going to take us to the Roman Empire, but it did. Ah, okay. I could have told you that, but just because I read these books like a long time ago. Yeah. Just vaguely, I didn't really, I did know that, of course, that they, they had involvement with the area, but I didn't know that them kind of leaving the area would like put this pressure on. I also read somewhere that um, basically the stories might be taken from other Welsh folk tales as well. I mean, this is how folklore kind yeah. of evolves, right? We know there, this. There's a really interesting um, Welsh book of folklore that I think that I definitely have to dig into um, next because it's kind of like the center of their folklore um, for that whole area. And a, a lot of this, so a lot of this story, as I was reading it at least, happens between like in and around Cornwall which is just uh, below Wales. And also there's reference to Westminster in, in England and in London. And, you know, there's kind of that question. Several locations throughout the UK are linked to Arthur and to Camelot. So mm-hmm. there is Tittingell in Cornwall. Which looks freaking um, gorgeous, by the way. I know. I know. It looks insane. Yeah. Me too. It's absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. Um Carleon in South Wales, Cadbury Castle in Somerset, yes. Glastonbury in Somerset, 
Ruxeter. Um, yeah, there's places all over the UK that are linked to Arthur, Camelot, and Avalon in some way. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, maybe we should kind of just go into the areas where Arthur appeal- appears first, or like the the literary stuff where Arthur yeah. appears first, because let's, you had to kind of yeah, touched let, upon it. Let's paint a picture. Uh, let's do that. Let's paint a picture and let's revisit the OG story of Arthur, the origin story, <laughs> as yeah. you will. The earliest reference to Arthur is in a poem from around mm-hmm. 594. That's when it's been dated to, and it's called... Hmm, Anarin's E. Goddarden in the earliest surviving Welsh poem. It's a Welsh yes. poem. So I probably yes. really damaged the pronunciation of that because Welsh is a wild, wild language. And who is it written by? Was it written by, what was his name? Joffrey of... Uh, no, no, no. That, no, that's later. Okay. That's, that's later. in the 12th century. Oh, okay. Yeah. That comes forward in the 12th century. Oh, yeah. yeah you're right. So 594. Okay, so, right. This is a series of um, elegies, basically, which are mournful poems or poems that express some sort of lament, often written for funerals or for someone who's died. And in one of these elegies is a reference made to Arthur. So Um. that alone suggests that he was probably a famous figure at the time the poem was written. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. See, so easy for me to get lost in the sauce on this one. It's so interesting. <laughs> Let's paint a picture of Arthur's origin story. So Arthur's origin story doesn't actually start with him. It starts with his father, who is this elusive King Uther Pendragon. Was he real? Was he not real? We'll talk about that later, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and as the story goes, Uther Pendragon is the king and he is a very fair and beloved ruler. Everybody really loves him, Um, but he's a lonely guy. He has no children and he has no wife and he, he needs to get married and he needs to have a baby. As we know, kings always need an heir and that's like a huge trope we see in like tons of stories. Mm -hmm. So, so, Uther has the hots for this woman, right? He has the hots for this woman who's actually married to a duke. And the duke is the duke of, sorry, what did you say that name of that gorgeous castle was? Titangel. Titangel. So she's actually married to this duke. Her name's Ukraine. And Uther is like really, really into her. So because he's into her, he invites a whole bunch of people um to his palace to party because he wants her very um (laughs) it's it's very uh what's that crazy book Gatsby it's very Gatsby and and (laughs) he invites everybody so that she can come and then when she's there he's like very much pursuing her quite assertively and openly he's the king he can do whatever he wants so anyways her husband the duke sees it he gets pretty upset and he takes her and they leave and they go back to their their castle right and Mm -hmm. that's a big no-no because the king uh you're never supposed to leave the king the king's supposed to take leave of you and then you go so the king wants this guy this duke's wife he's pissed off that they left and the, the legend goes and now this might be the 12th century legend, but the legend goes that he, you know, this like battle kind of ensues. And there's now a battle between the king and this this duke. Um, and a lot of it is kind of stemming from the fact that the king kind of wants this guy's wife. <laughs> Which, mm-hmm. classic, since the medieval times. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, so at some point he calls Merlin in and at this point in time, I do not know how he knows Merlin, how Merlin comes into the equation. I don't know if we're going to get to that in this episode or another episode, but we will get there. No. Okay. So let's just say (laughs) Merlin is now brought into the equation and Uther Pendragon wants help from Merlin in this situation. And Merlin says, okay, I will help you, but you have, there is a price. And the price is if I help you get this woman any children that come out of this, they come to me. Like I get to claim them, which is very mm-hmm. Rumpelstiltskin-esque. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I was reviewing this. 
So the king agrees. I guess he didn't care about having kids that much. He was more interested in having this girl. Yeah. So Merlin casts a spell on King Uther Pendragon. And just such a cool name anyways, but that's a side note. So, and now the king looks like this duke, her husband. And her husband's actually off fighting in this war that's been started. And he, it's very Zeus-like. He transforms <laughs> into, into a guy that looks like her husband, goes and sees her. She runs to him because she thinks it's her husband. They mm-hmm. get busy. <laughs> and then, you know, that happens. <laughs> and then somewhere in the story, there is um, the war. They find out that the the actual duke has died. And so now the king decides to take this woman as his wife. They have a baby. It is Arthur. And Merlin takes Arthur away from them. That's kind of like the origin story of Arthur's birth. I went in a different direction where I was literally talking about like the historical evidence of of Arthur or like the earliest references yeah for sure but we should I mean like we should let people know like what the story no no no. (laughs) that is the story and so like I I went in a different direction so I'm glad you went there so yeah the first earliest reference is that poem in 594 it's a Welsh poem of elegies fast forward to the year 830 and he appears in someone's named Nennius, has written something called History of the Britons. And here he's depicted just as a heroic general and a Christian warrior. Mm -hmm. Now, the main source for the Arthurian legends that we know of come from Geoffrey de Monmouth's 12th century book, The History of the Kings of Britain. And that's something that chronicles the lives of the earliest British rulers And there's very few references to Arthur or to an Arthur figure in these documents from the 9th and 10th century. But Joffrey kind of gives the very first extensive account of Arthur's life and exploits. Mm -hmm. Because they weren't really included until then. (laughs) So even just the story that you're talking about, that was probably elaborated a lot later. Yeah. Most certainly. And so... There's a lot of familiar aspects of King Arthur's story in Monmouth's version that he, that like were not previously mentioned. But even then, he doesn't actually mention Camelot, Lancelot, or the Holy Grail, or the the Sword and Stone, or the Chivalric Knights of the Round Table. The way that I understood it is that he kind of created this origin story. Kind Um, of. And then other people kind of came along and added in these other stories. Yeah, like a lot of familiar aspects are included, but he still doesn't mention like major things. He still doesn't mention Camelot, Lancelot, Holy Grail. Like those things are still not included. And what's other, what's also interesting about him as a writer is he was like a Welsh clergic, cleric or whatever. So he was worked, like he was, he worked within the church and he wrote these things and, Mm um, you know, kind of went out and like passed it around as as history, as fact. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. really, really clung to that idea. Yeah. Like even, even nobility was clinging to that idea. I think now it's yeah. mostly, it's mostly been by historians. It's mostly been debunked and history is considered like pseudo history at this point. Yeah. But that's yeah. really, we've seen traces of that in other things that we've covered in this podcast. So I think it's, so interesting and I've always wondered that throughout history like before we had the internet before we had all of this fact checking it could have been just so easy to just like make up this thing and be like it really happened you know oh absolutely also the fact that he took a lot from like from these um famous Welsh folk tales as well and apparently Arthur is referred to and at least I think six or seven of of these stories in the Mabagani so uh, that's, you know. <laughs> yeah. Historians and archaeologists basically believe that a lot of details that we know of the King Arthur stories that kind of make them what we know today and what we celebrate today 
in these stories were added many centuries later to make Arthur a much more appealing figure. Mm-hmm. But there's one archaeologist archeologi- um, named Miles Russell from Burnmouth University who said, truth be told, the author of John Free- Joffrey of Monmouth is a deeply unlikable sociopath, a violent, quick to anger, murderous thug. Whoa, he is someone who very much fits the dark age idea of a su- successful king, but not a hero for the Middle Ages. And I think that that's really important. Interesting. Like a lot of this stuff was written down a lot later. And their idea of what a successful king would have looked like was very, very different. So like you said, you know, Mammoth's account is often ridiculed today. Um, at his best, he's like chastised for getting his facts wrong. And at his worst, he's accused of inventing the entire thing. Mm, yeah. He claims to have simply translated an ancient book from Latin, but no one knows yes, what he was this shown source a material. Book at Oxford, right? And but nobody's Apparently, ever found this book, or nobody's ever said like that this book was no, a real thing. No reference is really made to what it actually was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he probably cobbled a bunch of tales together and like characters together to create mm-hmm. this beloved Arthur character. That was one of the things I heard about Arthur too from a historian. I was watching a video um, about all of this and he was basically saying that the, the main stories we know about Arthur happened, but they happened to a bunch of different people at different points yeah. in history. And it's almost like yeah. they compiled these stories to create a centralized character of Arthur. Yeah. So like, you know, there is one theory that exactly it's kind of exploits of other well-known rulers, mm-hmm. but especially Ambrosius Aurelianus, mm-hmm. which is a Roman Britain warlord. I can't speak this morning. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, warlord, <laughs> <laughs> who um, basically won a very decisive battle against the invading Anglo-Saxons in the mid fifth century. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of scholars believe the entire thing is fictional. Yeah, It's really possible that Joffrey pulled from a lot of folklore and chronicles, existing oral tales, bardic poems, and things like that to create a fairly patriotic British narrative. And then, you know, after Monmouth in the 12th century, you have Chrétien de Troyes, and in the 15th century an author named Sir Thomas Mallory. That blew my mind. That part embellished. That <laughs> part blew my mind. I was like, one of the first things I came across was like, these French writers wrote these like romantic, yeah. these romantic stories. They are the ones that kind of like romanticized the stories of Arthur uh, or made these mm-hmm. stories of Lancelot, this, that, and everything. And I was There's like- a reason that the French are known as a romantic people, right? But I was also like, how the frig, <laughs> how the frig did we get here? I wasn't expecting that. I was definitely not expecting so much like- I know that there's always been a thing forever going on between France, what we know of as France and what we know of mm-hmm. as like the UK and England. But yeah. and I know it's been going on for like a thousand, thousand million years. But yeah. I was not <laughs> I was not expecting that part. It really took me a lot not to deeply deviate into that because I was like, how did we how did we bring it back around to French writers? Like, how did that even just happen? You know, we often say like things would have been located like so much further back in the day and it would have taken so much longer to get there. That didn't stop people from moving around though. They really had that like, coast. There's I, a reason that people moved all over the world. It seems like that whole coast, like from where like the UK and Ireland currently are, and then this whole coast along where we have Brittany, even where even uh if you go into Galicia in the, the northern uh mm-hmm. part of Spain, like it, it's I get the impression, I haven't done all the research on that, but I get the impression that it was pretty well chartered and mapped out like in terms of like boats and things like that. So Mm -hmm. we see Celtic, we see Celtic heritage running all the way down to Spain. Oh yeah. You know, there's there's Celtic, yeah, there's Celtic heritage in Portugal as well. Oh my gosh. There's a bunch of, yeah, there's a bunch of 
stories of goblins and elves and stuff in the northern part of Portugal, which is right under Galicia, right? So, right, right. Oh my gosh, makes yeah, sense. That's right. It's such a gorgeous area. Yeah. Side note, yeah. I would like to take a moment to tell everybody, if you're into traveling, you should definitely travel to Galicia and the northern part of Portugal. I have done this on a road trip and it's so gorgeous and it really does bizarrely give you like Celtic energy, even though you're in Spain. (laughs) Um, It's a beautiful place that like not a lot of people travel to. So um, if you're ever in the mood to explore and really get like a a sense of all these kinds of energies at once, that's a great place to do it. (laughs) Yeah. It's a really, really cool place for sure. I love it. It's like now one of my favorite space places in Spain, actually. Yay. (laughs) Anyways, I digress. Yeah. um, Basically, you know, what all of this comes to is the mythologizing of Arthur probably happened during the Middle Ages. And the medieval, medieval era, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, it kind of all spans the same area but we'll call the dark ages like a little closer to right after the roman empire left britain yeah <laughs> and I, you know the medieval yeah. tale comes a little later but it basically all kind of spans the thousand years after rome leaves britain right. to like nearly a thousand years like 1400 1450-ish so first it's important to know that at that time people who knew how to write would usually be like part of a religious order cap the Catholic order, Christian order, whoever, whatever. They're usually the ones writing or the Romans, right? But there are some um, historical documents that they have of like documenting that period of time and how the Romans kind of pulling out of that area kind of left people open and relatively vulnerable and Mm, they left them high and dry and really not being able to use some of the Roman tools that had been used like the Romans were there things like that so they were kind of I just wanted to touch on that because you mentioned like dark ages leading into the middle ages Mm -hmm. and the dark ages was this time where they kind of pulled away everybody was kind of left scrambling and then also there were invasions as well right like yeah they were constantly fighting off invasions if you do read the sky stone by jack white it covers this really really clearly and really gives you a better much more in-depth understanding of what people were facing at the time Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. there was this organized social structure and all of a sudden it's uprooted and it it's like up and left and People don't know what to do with themselves or how to defend themselves and everything that they knew was just – the rug was taken out from under them. Yeah. Yeah, basically. exactly. And so it's an, it's the idea that Arthur – the story of Arthur is kind of birthed out of that as an, an inspirational tale mm-hmm. to, like, give people hope almost, right? Kind of. Yeah. Here's what I think and here's what I think a lot of historians believe because the question is, like, was he real? Was he not? I think mm-hmm. if he was real, in reality, he was a Romano-British warrior. He probably did not live in a castle. He probably lived in a hill fort. Mm-hmm. He didn't have... Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, he didn't have the armor, like the full yeah. armor that we think of today because that didn't exist at the time. He may have had a breastplate and the rest was leather armor. Mm-hmm. You know, he probably had cavalry, but he might have also been a foot soldier a lot of the time. Like... It's hard to it's hard to know. Um, yeah, chainmail was really only came about in the ninth century, and like actual armor suits of plate armor were introduced. In the I love that you know so that. In that I love that era. you know that. <laughs> oh, I studied chain medieval mail. history in university, <laughs> but like chainmail only came about in the ninth century, so there's no way you could have had that before. <laughs> like, yeah, it was probably just like a breastplate you know. and leather armor. Yeah, yeah. so like the. That alone, if you look at who Arthur would have been at the time that he would have been alive, this entire romantic version that we have in our brain, because when I think of the Arthurian legends without giving it much thought, I'm like, massive castle, suit of armor, giant broadsword. Super sparkly, like silver armor, right? Like an armor that just like glistens in the light. (laughs) Yeah. A giant broadsword, also not invented at the time. Okay. Oh. They would have been a lot smaller. 
Right. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's a good question. The the sword, because the sword, there's this, there's a whole thing around, yes. um, you know, the sword and stone. That's kind of like part mm-hmm. two of the journey of Arthur uh, is when he pulls the sword from mm-hmm. the stone. And so you're saying a sword like that wouldn't have existed at the time that this may, this person may have existed, but would it have existed in and around the time where they kind of redid these whole story when they gave them their glow up, like in the 12th century, yeah. <laughs> it would have been... Yeah, I think I think that they added all of these facets at the time that these later poets mm-hmm. were writing. They wanted to make Arthur a king that was relatable mm-hmm. to them. And at that time, kings mm-hmm. did have castles. Kings did have big suits mm-hmm. of armor and big swords and things like that. So all of a sudden, this idea of just like a warrior in a hill fort who's a really good general, basically, or like really good fighter, really really good at planning battles, has completely shifted. Speaks to a different time, not necessarily the time they want it to speak to at at their time, I guess. Yeah, they've adapted these stories to be a much more accurate representation of what they would have believed a king should This is exactly be. why I don't get mad about Marvel anymore. <laughs> I'm starting to realize after doing this show for four seasons now that this reformatting glow up <laughs> happens a lot throughout throughout storytelling processes and things change. You know what I mean? Interesting. But- and, you know, we always come back to, like, how it's a representation of culture Absolutely. at the time yeah. that it's written. Yeah. This is how. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what do you think? Should we share right now the, like, kind of part two of, like, the sword and the stone, how that whole thing goes down? Yeah. Okay. So part two of yeah. <laughs> Arthur's story. So basically Merlin takes him away from uh, the king, Uther Pendragon, and his and his wife, now wife, and decides to bring him, I don't really know why, to another duke who is an ally of the king. So he's an ally of the king. Merlin brings this duke, Arthur, and I don't know exactly how or why Merlin does. I'm sure Merlin has a reason for this, but he basically tells this Duke that Arthur is actually his son, his, I'm, I'm going to use the B word. I hate this word, but his bastard son. And I think that's such a nasty word. I can't believe that they would say that about people at all. Ever, yeah. You know what I mean? Anyways, again, we're seeing, we're seeing traces of Game of Thrones, guys. Uh, <laughs> Who came first, the chicken or the egg? We don't know. Yeah, we know in this case. It was definitely this. <laughs> we know in this case, no. yeah. But anyway, so they, he, Merlin brings this guy, Arthur, and he's like, this is actually your baby from like another uh, dalliance that you had. So he's kind of, he stays in the realm of this duke. He's kind of given to people who look after him. And this duke has a son, like a son through his marriage, a legitimate son. And this legitimate son, everybody thinks that Arthur is the illegitimate child of this duke. And um, Mm -hmm. nobody, not even the duke, no one knows who Arthur really is. Not Arthur himself, not anybody. So Arthur- Oh, he doesn't look like either of his parents, huh? Maybe they all kind of looked alike. I don't know. <laughs> but he, so because of this, he is grow. He grows up being ridiculed, as as we all know, like a bee child. That also feels cringy and icky to say, but gets heavily criticized <laughs> and usually bullied because you know they absolutely had a choice in how they were brought into the world. But anyway, um, they get picked on. They get picked. So he gets picked on a lot by his kind of like half brother. He gets bullied. He gets, um, he's also looked down upon by the people that take care of him who are like kind of like his adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. And at some point as he's growing up, Merlin reintroduces himself to Arthur. Arthur doesn't know Merlin brought him there. He doesn't know anything, but Merlin starts to like show up in Arthur's life again and starts to become kind of like a a teacher and a a guide for Arthur. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that he predominantly educates Arthur and 
you know, kind of teaches, like shows him the full potential. He sees in Arthur that Arthur could be a good and just ruler. Like, I think there's probably something to be said mm-hmm. about like why Merlin took him away. I, when I was rereading this, I was thinking a lot yeah. about like privilege and just being born into it versus like having to understand like adversity that people go through. So maybe there's something there in that. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah. So he can see that there is something good in Arthur. And so he is giving Arthur a lot of these lessons that are going to inform how he reigns as a king in the future. Mm -hmm. While this is all happening, Uther Pendragon dies. He gets sick very closely after um, Arthur goes away. He gets sick and he dies. And so now the kingdom is like in a shit storm. Uh, Because he didn't have an heir, there's Mm -hmm. nobody to claim to claim the right to the throne and then obviously dukes are coming in left right and center and saying like we should do this people are frantic and so the court kind of gets together in an emergency situation they're not sure what to do so who do they call they call merlin again (laughs) however how he got the trust of these everybody i would love to know um so merlin shows up and is like don't worry you guys i've got a plan and supposedly he resurrects this stone and on this stone there is an anvil and then in the anvil there is a giant sword and he tells them that only and then there's something written on the sword right and it says basically only the person Mm -hmm. that is meant to be only the, the true, true king, king will be able to something. pull this sword out of this stone. And so Merlin's like, guys, don't worry. The sword is in the stone and all somebody has to do is pull it out. And if they can pull it out, they're the one that's meant to be the king. So, of course, people come in from all around the land. They're like trying to take their turn, pulling it out of um, pulling it out of this anvil on the stone. And nobody can do it. Yeah. And then so after a while, it kind of loses momentum and people just go away and they just forget about it. And the country is falling deeper and deeper into despair because they don't really have anybody ruling anything or making any moves and people are just fighting against each other. And in that time, Merlin is also working with Arthur, teaching him, like kind of coaching him, all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when Merlin, I'm sorry, when Arthur is like around 15 years old, Uh, He decides, apparently, when he's around 15 years old, he decides to take him to West... uh, Supposedly, the stone is in Westminster. And that's in... Supposedly, that's in London. Like, well, Westminster is in London. Whether or not it was actually there or not, we'll get into it later. But you probably know Westminster from Westminster Abbey if you've ever watched a royal wedding ever, because it's always there. Um, Just to give you some context as to where that particular kind of spot is. Um, Not that the stone was in Westminster Abbey. That's just the landmark that a lot of us know. But anyways, they take him there. And of course, also his, uh, let's call him an evil half-brother also comes. And the evil half-brother tries to draw the sword out first and he can't. Of course, Arthur gets his turn. He pulls the sword out of the stone, out of the stone. They've made entire movies just around this one story. And because he pulls the sword out of the stone, everybody knows that he's the one that's meant to be king. And that's kind of like part two of the act of Arthur. Mm-hmm. So now, now he's now he's going to be the king. And when he becomes the king, he kind of creates Camelot. And this is we have to get here because there's some really same questions like the way that there were around Arthur is he real was he real same questions apply to Camelot right yeah I want to I want to go into basically two locations that have a lot of lore around Arthur and I named some of them earlier there's a shit ton so we can't go into all of them because there's just there's too much so one that's really popular that has to do with Arthur and it doesn't even necessarily have to do with Camelot but I want to go into it because I think that you, Tegan, will like get really I'm already excited, excited. a lot of this. <laughs> so the first one is in Glastonbury oh, yeah. in Somerset. Oh, yeah. And in Glastonbury, there is an abbey, which is now completely in ruins. It was once the second largest and most affluent abbey in England during its time. The next, I guess, grand and most rich abbey would have been oh, boy. Westminster. Okay. 
Wow. Um, that's, that's really saying yeah. something if you've ever seen what Westminster looks like. And it, it's just like redonkulous. So. Yeah. Yeah, well. exactly. So it was once the second largest and most affluent mm-hmm. in England mm-hmm. during its time. It is believed that King Arthur was one of the early Christian kings and that it's the location that Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene and Mother Mary settled and built the first ever Christian church in the year 63, which was called the Old Church. And later the abbey was built around it. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, I can't even say it. Joseph of Arimathea was responsible for Jesus's burial after his crucifixion. So he's mentioned mentioned in the Bible. And Wait, how did we get to Jesus? Wait, what? Because I'm explaining how the abbey in Glastonbury okay, kind of came okay. to be. All right, I'm going to say, this is wild already. There is a plaque that stands there today saying that the monks discovered Arthur and Guinevere's bodies in 1191. Oh, yeah. It's just a plaque. There's no other descriptions. Okay. It's said that the monks moved the bones in great ceremony up near the high altar of the great church and put the tombs with black marble lids. So this is not where Camelot was or anything. It's apparently Mary where Arthur Mary. and Guinevere were buried. And also where Jesus and yeah. Mary had set up the church. Okay, yeah. All right, I see it. Yeah, and apparently in the year 63, they built the first ever Christian church. So Joseph, Mary, and Mary went there after Jesus's crucifixion. I mean, I guess they had to have something. They had to have something because pretty much this whole area where I live got Mary Magdalene and all that. So I guess, you know, okay. All right. Sure. Sure. Okay. Tegan, Mary Magdalene is everywhere in Europe. Mary Magdalene apparently went everywhere in Europe. Oh, I know. I know. Is she in Turkey? Is she she in France? We don't know. She's everywhere. That's fine. She's in Glastonbury, apparently. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so a lot of the abbey has been destroyed over the years. First by King Henry VIII. That guy sounds like a right um, in the dissolution of Sorry. Yeah, in the dissolution of monasteries during the 16th century. And then just later, like through neglect and time, it fell into disrepair and ruin. So no bones actually exist there today. It's thought that the monks would have moved bones and other relics during this time of dissolution Mm -hmm. of the monasteries but we don't know what actually Mm -hmm. happened to them so there is a theory that the bones moved were actually of joseph of arimathea and mary magdalene's and if that's true it's still an interesting connection because joseph was responsible for bringing the holy grail to glastonbury and we know that the knights of the round table pursued the holy grail and this is how it ties into arthur in that way that story. Yeah, I'm so confused about this. Yeah, okay. There's a lot of theories on what this is, um, on like what the Holy Grail is. Some people believe it to be Mary Magdalene yes. herself. Right, because they say they say it was the vessel that Jesus like, well, partook in at the Last Supper, which you depending on how yeah. you take it, you could be, you know, he, he, he did like the whole body of Christ and wine thing. So it could be a chalice. You know, if you if you follow if you yeah. follow Da Vinci Code, could be a womb. I mean, in a way, I feel like that. I mean, <laughs> I feel, I feel like things. the womb thing tracks. <laughs> and so, in this way, it kind of relates to that story of King Arthur and the knights pursuing the Holy Grail, right. and kinds. Of, it all kind of ties into right. Glastonbury. The uh, there's another theory, and I believe this personally to be true. The monks made the whole thing up. <laughs> Having Arthur's grail? No, having like saying that Arthur and Guinevere were buried there because having Arthur's relics and bones there would have attracted pilgrims. Pilgrims are good for business. And the plaque says that they were found there in 1191. In 1184, there was a giant fire that destroyed most of the abbey. So less than a decade later, they all of a sudden found the bones of Arthur and Guinevere and it brought a lot of funding Mm. to the Abbey and they were able to rebuild something that was a lot Mm. bigger than previous. And even today you can still go to Glastonbury and like they profit off the word. I do it. I do it in a heartbeat. I don't even believe it's them, but I'd still go. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It looks pretty cool. 
also there is like this ruined medieval church on called the Glastonbury Tor and it sits on top of a hill that's like 500 mm. feet high and the surrounding area provides like this 360 mm. view there's a lot of interesting things about this specific location apparently at one point like the surrounding area was a lot of water so some people call this the Isle of Avalon where King Arthur went after his last battle uh, there's also, and you'll like this too, it's also a location apparently where like hundreds of ley lines converge to give it a special energy. Ooh, I'm so obsessed with ley lines. <laughs> I don't know anything about them, but I want to learn. And yeah, beneath the cool. hill, there is a hidden cave through which you can pass into the Celtic fairy realm of the Anun. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay, so this kind of tracks because we see that we see that a lot in stories literally like history gets layered on top of each other so if this was a place that was sacred before the church before mary magdalene before arthur and Gwyneth, it would make sense that it would all kind of get stacked on top of each other yeah so that's that's one location but i don't think it actually is real where arthur comes into play just because that fire seems too it's it's too coincidental that there's this fire and then less than a decade later they found the bones yeah and they just claimed them to be Arthur and Guinevere. Well, ultimately, with all of these things, like I went to see Mary Magdalene's skull in in the south of France. Honestly, I would recommend that anybody do this anytime they're here just to see it. It's really cool in itself. But ultimately, with all of these things, we didn't like. There's no way to know for sure. Even now, when they start to when they take those remains and they you know, do whatever science we can do on it now, we might be able to say like, yes, it was a woman from this time, but there's no way to say for sure if it was that person or not, right? And it, I mean, yeah, yeah. it might have been, but it might not have been, you know. Can't hold on too tightly to those <laughs> things, I think. You can't because even, um, where is it? In, in Winchester, in Hampshire, they apparently have a giant round table and it's in the great hall at Winchester Castle in Hampshire and it has the names of King Arthur and the 24 knights and it shows their places around the table but this was carbon dated and it was carbon dated to only the 13th or 14th century so (laughs) yeah I think like we we kind of touched on that earlier but it seems like there were like a lot of people really and I guess that's what makes it a legend right a lot of people really believed it to be real whether there was proof of it being real or not and there is something magical and mystical about that ability to do that and it of itself but i think in and around the between the 11th and 14th century people were really 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 into the idea it makes sense given the time and you know maybe they were creating things or finding ways to like you know resurrect it was like a a rebirth of that idea in a new way through through different castles through a round table through who knows all kinds of things that said yes i will say i found okay so there's this guy named Graham Phillips who wrote a book called King Arthur, the true story. And he is seen as a novice and not always taken as seriously. However, he has a background as a reporter and investigative journalist for the BBC. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those are the skills that historians require. And so he's not that much of a novice. He also has a bunch of books and documentaries, Mm -hmm. And has spent decades investigating historical mysteries. His research is very compelling. And this is what this is where I'll go into because I feel like it I was looking at his research and it honestly blew my fucking mind a little bit. So 300 years before the first Arthurian romances were written in the Middle Ages, there were records that were kept by West or Welsh priests, and they were known as the Welsh Annals. And it refers to events throughout all of Britain that happened during the Dark Ages in the 5th and 6th century. And in these annals, we find that the monks recorded something of the Battle of Baden in about 520. Oh, yes. And it says, in which Arthur carried the cross of our Lord Jesus on his shoulders for three days and three nights, and the Britons were victorious. Okay. Mm -hmm. Also recorded in the annals about 20 years later is another reference, this time to the Battle of Camlan, in which Arthur and Mordred perished. And in the Middle Ages, the story is that Arthur died in the Battle of Camlan, fighting his nephew, Modred. 
by the 800s, people were writing records of their own histories and believe Arthur to have been a real historical figure. And we know the history of Britons was written in like 830, and he's this like heroic general and Christian warrior. And um, it lists like the 12 different battles that Arthur mm-hmm. would have fought in mm-hmm. as leader of the Britons mm-hmm. and like battles where he was victorious. And it was very much presented in this history of Britons as fact without like further elaboration or mythology. Just like this was the general, they they fought this battle, they were successful. Yeah. Not much more to it than that. Okay. Now there's archaeology in and around Middle England near the Welsh border that shows the area was under assault. And there was a period when the Saxon invasion kind of was stopped in the area. Mm. So... That means that whoever the military leader was at the time who was able to stop this Saxon invasion, they would have been a hero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right? They would have been portrayed as a hero. So Graham's research kind of goes into really early British texts. And he found research, a story by a monk named Gildas, which describes the exploits of a local king whose battle name was the Orso or the Bear. Mm. Okay, so it's an illuminated manuscript. It's written around the year 445. What does that mean, illuminated manuscript? Sorry. So, you know, um, like old texts that are, they have like the writing, but they also have some gold and some drawings oh, okay. in them. okay. That's what, I thought that might like, be what it meant, but I didn't need it to ask. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So there's like a lot more color. There's some pictures in them and things like that. Mm, okay. So... Around 445 probably would have been in living memory of Arthur, if there was a real Arthur. It would have been within living memory of Arthur's time. And Gildas doesn't say his name explicitly right away, but he uh, refers to someone named De Orso, which means the bear. But he refers to a number of British kings by their battle names. Mm. So if you look at the Welsh, like modern-day Welsh, and Welsh that would have been spoken at the time, the equivalent of the word bear is arth. Right. Yes, I caught. And so saying yeah. Arthur would have been saying the bear. Yes. So the bear, as he's referred to, is a battle name. <gasps> and we know that Arthur's emblem in all this stuff is the bear. I didn't even know that. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. No. So it means that during this time, a real King Arthur probably would have existed. Um, and his name locally would have been Arthur. Mm. But that's not his real name. His name is Owen Thangwin. Mm. So you have this, this text written by a monk that talks about this battle name of of Arthur, essentially. Mm. That's his, his name. In Arthurian legends, he's said to have ruled from this magnificent city of Camelot. The site hasn't been fully discovered, but Graham kind of, again, continues to digging into historical texts. He thinks he found the relocation. Um, around the year 500, Britain had fragmented into a bunch of small kingdoms. The largest and strongest was the kingdom of Powys, and now it's a Welsh county, but it was at the time, much larger and kind of spanned and covered the area of Midlands, England, Mm. um, and central Wales. Its capital was Viriconium, which was once a thriving Roman town and became one of Britain's, if not the most important city, one of Britain's most important cities during the post-Roman era. Interesting. And that's where he thinks that Arthur ruled. So other major cities, other major Roman cities like London, Lincoln, and York had been invaded by the Anglo-Saxons at this time. So Viriconium was kind of the last stronghold. And that's kind of the criteria that you need to find a likely Camelot where Arthur would have ruled Mm -hmm. from. And there's archaeological evidence that shows it was a Roman structure, but rebuilt during the Arthurian period to be a defensive structure because Camelot was both a fort and also a grand city. Mm-hmm. And Viriconium kind of ticks the boxes with this. What's more, and this is the part where my mind was then like truly blown, mm-hmm. they found information about the kings of Powys in the area, and they found that Owen's father, so Arthur's father, also had a battle name, which was 
the terrible head dragon. In Welsh, this translates to Uther Pendragon. Aha. Uh-huh. Interesting. And so according to legends, it's kind of like the same name as Arthur's father. It puts them both in the same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know, this seems like it could be it in that case. Yeah. But why wasn't it ca- called Camelot? Any ideas why? No. Or why was it called Camelot? Um, I think I've okay. heard, I, from what I understood that like, from what I understood, it maybe it got a bit conflated with like other battles or other places. I'm not sure though. So please take it away. <laughs> I'm. Well, you know, our lovely seat. French poet, Chrétien. Oh, Dutra. of course. Oh, why didn't I guess that? Okay, sure. Yeah, go for it. So he was the first to introduce some of the best known aspects of the Arthurian right. legends, like the affair between Lancelot All and Guinevere, the, the Grail quest, um, and Camelot as the name of Arthur's court. Well, what rhymes with Lancelot? Camelot? Hmm. What? Okay, wait. You yeah. Know what? Oh, because he's a poet. Because he's a poet? Yeah. Is that why? Oh my yeah. god, that's so. Well, dumb. he's a poet. He there was there was no Camelot until Chrétien de Troyes got his hands on this stuff. Oh my gosh! But that rhymes in English. Would it rhyme in French? <laughs> well, very the Lancelot. I don't know. How do you say Lancelot and Camelot with a French? I don't accent? know. I'm gonna ask Michael. I have no <laughs> idea. I don't even. I don't even want to take the chance. Also, it's just double weird because it's technically like English names being translated into French. And then like, I don't know how that works. It's confusing. Anyway. I don't know either, but I know that there was no Camelot until Chrétien de Troyes. Okay. So interesting. So maybe it's not actually that it rhymes with Lancelot, but but he invented okay. it. Okay. <laughs> maybe maybe there's something to do with the word with the ending, the the suffix of lot that means something. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so um oh, and I never actually said that's in Ruxeter in Shropshire in England that that Graham Phillips has kind of found this location, which is very close to the Welsh border. Oh, okay. That's so interesting. I find it really interesting that there's like so much shared legend legendary stories between Wales and and England it's like kind of one of those places like in our time where uh the Welsh people currently they want they want people to know that even though it was like a really long long time ago they were a separate nation uh just like Scotland or like Ireland for example um we tend to think of it yeah as a cluster yeah so it's very interesting and I can't help but wonder if some of that gets caught up in all of this you know what I mean I'm, I'm imagining it does especially when you get into the Saxons and the Britons and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, Welsh has its own, it's its own language, right? Like it's part of England today, go to Wales and it's like part of England, but they fought for their independence for such a long time and they were such formidable fighters as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very, very interesting. It's interesting. So that's a quick crash course, I guess, on like <laughs> Arthur and Camelot and the existence of I think that, yes, Arthur existed, but it's a very different version of mm. of Arthur. Like, what Arthur actually was was very different than all the stories that came later. See, before, before we sat down for this podcast, I was in the realm of thinking he probably didn't exist himself. He's probably a compilation. But... I guess we'll never know, but like I get what I get where you're coming from on it, and honestly, I feel like you're more informed than me. So I, I'm now having a tendency to like believe, like agree no, with you. <laughs> I think that I think that the later versions of Arthur that were written yeah. down by poets and whatever later that was a compilation of a bunch of different things. But I think that there was a real person yes. who was a, still a hero who was doing incredible and maybe he was still quite like a, a noble person in his own way in, in the way of the time. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. But I think that that, that definition is very different from what we've ended up. Yeah. With. It's so cool. Well, I mean like, yeah. you know, we're just getting into it and I guess for the remainder of the, the, the season, we're going to kind of dive into more of these like, 
stories that came out of the 12th century around Arthur. Yeah, potentially, and like go into Merlin. Yes, Avalon. Merlin. You know Avalon. the fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very I'm very excited about this. In the next episode, we're going to dive into this deeper. We'll cover a couple, couple other uh, of the stories that kind of happen chronologically with Arthur as he, he meets Guinevere and so on and so forth. Um, but mm. to all of that stuff in the rest of the season. But we hope you, yeah, we hope you enjoyed a, a crash course <laughs> in Arthurian legend. <laughs> I was, it's so weird. It's one of those things I was expecting to know and then... And then I'm kind of realizing like, wow, there's so much to dive into here, you know? There's a lot of yeah. stuff. There's a lot of stuff. All right, everybody. Anyways, join us next we'll time. We'll see you guys soon. Oh, uh, right. Like, subscribe, email. Oh, yes, please. Please um, <laughs> like, subscribe, follow us. Yes, please. We'd like to know that you're out there. Let us know you're out there. <laughs>